0: The first reading this morning is taken from the book of Psalms, chapter 13, from 1 to 6. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, for I will sleep in death, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Here ends the first reading. Thanks be to thee, O God.
1: Matthew chapter 26 from verse 36. yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: You'll know that there was a a key moment when the moderator of the Church of Scotland presented to the king this book. Bible. There were very, very many priceless objects on display, but none more priceless than this. These were the words that the moderator said. Receive this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you for your precious word, the Bible. As we prepare to hear you speak to us through it, keep us thankful that you are a God, who reveals Yourself to us. And open our hearts to receive what You have to say. For Jesus' sake. Amen. For a long time now, it's my instinct when I get in the car just to read straight for the radio, press the button, and I always like to listen to songs. But again and again, over many years, I was frustrated because I've come with a particular mood, a particular kind of circumstance in my life. I'm looking for songs that just fit. And so often, I'll surf the different channels, and I'll never get there. And then I discovered Spotify. Changed my life. So recently, actually, straight at the end of Ledbury, last day, Ledbury was was my birthday, one of the Ledburys, and I was heading off for two and a half hours to go to see my twin sister on my birthday. I wanted songs that fit the mood. And so I look on Spotify and there's a birthday. Clear series of birthday playlists and two and a half hours I was still going and by the end I was very much in the mood. Sunny day There's a a playlist for sunny day. I was listening to that recently. Actually, it seems quite a long time ago before uh, since we had a sunny day. Uh, Going to a cricket match, I've got a playlist for that. But what about when I'm sad? That's important to get the right kind of song then. And that was the problem before. Get in the car, turn on the radio, happy songs. Kind of makes you feel worse. Well, Spotify, if you put in the word sad, comes up with all sorts of playlists. And I've learned to avoid them like the plague. I mean, They reflect the mood. There's something good about that. But actually, that's all they do. They reflect the mood and then they deepen the mood. And so often they've got nothing to help lift me out of it. Or if not lift me out of it, speak into it. There's a lonely sad mix. Songs to cry to alone in my room at 3 a.m. Most poignant of all, sad songs because I'm sick of myself and life. And I know I mustn't listen to those songs because they'll drag me further down. The best playlist is in the Psalms. So turn to Psalm 13 if you're not there already. Got an ambitious aim, as I told you last week. If you were here, as we began our series in the Book of Psalms, we're looking at about eight or nine individual psalms. But in so doing, I want to give you a sense of, as it were, the plot of the Psalter as a whole. And there is a there's a worldview, a story behind these psalms, which is reflected in the progression, which shall, I think will become clearer as we move on. I also want to give you a sense of what's in here, the different kinds of psalms, so that When you read those kind of psalms, you can get more out of them yourself. And today we're looking at one of the psalms of lament, so-called, Psalm 13. 62 of the psalms are known as laments. Another 11 have strong elements of lament within them. So that's nearly half of the Psalter. And as Caroline was saying in that video, here are words that speak for us when we're low and life is hard. But wonderfully, unlike so many of the songs on the Spotify playlist, they not only speak for us, they speak to us. They not only enable us to express our sadness, they address us in the midst of it and speak words of comfort and hope. Psalm 13, you'll notice, as with most of the Psalms, begins with a heading for the director of music, a Psalm of David. Literally, actually, it says, for the leader. Although most commentators think that probably refers to the leader of music, the choir master. And certainly, as you read through the Psalms, there are lots of musical terms, some of which we've no idea quite what they mean. Psalm 7 is called a shigayon. Psalm 8 is according to gittith. And all the commentators can put as a footnote is probably a musical term. Possibly a literary term. But certainly we know these songs, these psalms, these poems were sung. Psalm 150 describes the different instruments that are used to praise the Lord. These are poems set to music. And it's really no accident throughout human history that when people have tried to express their most profound, deepest feelings, again and again they've turned to poetry and music. Somehow able to encapsulate, embody, express a mood. So we find here that there's a musicality about the words. And even though a lot of that is lost in translation, the best translations try and get something of the sense of the poetry. And we're not simply to switch our minds on and try and work out the meaning. We're meant to get the feel of the music of the poetry. So it gets under our skin and hits not just our head, but our hearts. And of course, that is helped when we sing these psalms. And we've already sung a version of Psalm 13. At the end of this sermon, we'll listen to someone singing a version of Psalm 13. This is for the director of music. It's meant to be sung. And it's a psalm of David. Many of the psalms, especially in the first two books of the Psalter, are written, it seems, by King David, the great king of Israel, who united the kingdom together, established Jerusalem as the capital city. So these are the words of one particular man at one particular time in history, and not just any old man. This is the king. So although it's true that as we read these psalms and we allow them to, to, as it were, get into us, so often we feel, yeah, that's me. David speaks for us. There are other times when His experience feels rather distant from ours, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. He's no ordinary man. This is the king, God's king. There are three pairs of verses in this psalm, and they make up three sections. And you can see something of a progression going through. It begins with a groan, and that turns into a prayer. And then the psalmist makes a resolve. And as we enter into this psalm, and allow it to enter into us. We might find that it takes us on a similar journey. And some of you, you feel a groan in your heart today. And hopefully this will help us to turn that groan into a prayer. And even if the groan is similar, in our hearts, to close with a resolve. So let's begin with the groan. Verses 1 two and you can get the heart cry from the repetition of those few words how long lord how long how long how long how long if time flies when you're enjoying yourself surely the opposite is true when things are really hard it seems that time slows down and every minute can feel like an hour every hour can feel like a week David is saying, that's what it feels like now. It's just going on and on and on and on. I'm not sure I can do this any longer. You get the sense of this profound emotion that's coming across. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And there are some are rather embarrassed and uncomfortable with that kind of depth of emotion. It's true of some cultures, it's true of some personalities. And some find that the, the way they, they handle emotion <coughs> is as it were to bury it. Pretend it's not really there, although it's got an uncomfortable habit of coming out at inconvenient moments. It's not at all uncommon, perhaps especially with childhood Pain, almost instinctively without realizing it, just to bury it. Not a great way of coping in the long term. Maybe, you know, I, I can't bury emotions, and you recognize sometimes in very uncomfortable ways the depth of your emotion. It's come out, and you thought, no, it's come out in the wrong way in the wrong kind of time, so that, that's awkward, that's embarrassing. And so instead of burying it, one way of dealing with it is to hide it sometimes to hide it from oneself, certainly to hide it from others. I don't want you to see the tears. You don't want me to see the groans. So we keep it buried. And the question comes, how are you? Fine. You, fine. When we're not fine. And if we keep on doing that, the result is a distance in our relationship. The Bible says, weep with those who weep rejoice with those who rejoice very very hard to do that if we've no idea when we're weeping when we're rejoicing and there's not only a distance in our relationship with one another there's a distance in our relationship with God it's almost as if we kind of feel that he needs us to put on the emotional equivalent of our Sunday best before we turn up in church before we ever address him and the result is that church can be a place of pretense we put on our Sunday smiles and sing our happy songs but there's a kind of unreality about it as we leave real life and sometimes messy grim, groaning life outside there are really no such inhibitions in David he's not pretending he doesn't have emotions he's open about his emotions and nor is he embarrassed about you and me seeing them and nor are the people of Israel. These are not just private songs that he sings to himself and doesn't let anyone know. They're private songs that he shared, and then Israel has chosen to sing together in the temple. This is private groaning gone public. There's something healthy about that. You can sense the breadth. Of the pain reflected in those first two verses. It begins with spiritual distress. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The Godhood times David has enjoyed such intimacy with now feels very, very distant indeed, and it's unbearable to him. And then the spiritual is very personal. Here at the beginning of verse 2 is mental, psychological, emotional pain. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Those thoughts just go round and round and round. His mind is always churning and those worries drag him down. It seems almost a physical sensation of sorrow and heaviness in the heart. And it's driven by Third kind of pain, circumstantial. It's what's going on in the world out there that's having such an impact on him spiritually and personally, psychologically, emotionally. Verse two, here you get a sense of what's actually going on at the end there. How long will my enemy triumph over me? We read the Psalms and we hear about enemies and perhaps we can identify those who really got it in for us very often we kind of spiritualize the enemies, and there's nothing wrong in doing that. But for David, this is not a spiritualized enemy. This is is real. Now, many of the Psalms give you in the title a little indication of exactly the circumstance in which David is at the time that he writes the Psalm. We don't get that here. But you can assume it's possibly right at the end of his life when his own son, (coughs) Absalom rebels against him, and chases him out of town. Just imagine the horror of that. Psalm 3 is from that period of his life. More likely, I suspect, and many of the psalms reflect this period, it was early after God has chosen him and anointed him as king. As a young man, do you remember? Samuel anoints him. And then he's taken into Saul's household. And Saul delights in his company. Loves to listen to the beautiful music he plays. But then something turns in Saul. Jealousy takes over. He hates David. He drives him out of the palace. He's cut off from friends and family. Cut off from home. He's on the run. Hiding in the back of caves. In constant danger. Seems it's a real human possibility that he's going to be defeated and killed. And it's from that context that he groans to God. This has gone on and on and on. This is not a momentary feeling. This is a circumstance that is dominating my life, and I can't go on with this. How long, Lord? David's story becomes Jesus' story because Jesus is great David's greatest son, God's anointed king, proclaimed as such by his baptism, his transfiguration, this is my son. You'd surely expect everyone then to bow down and worship him, but not a bit of it. His enemies circle. Satan tests him in the wilderness. The religious leaders scorn him, deride him, reject him the Roman authorities crucify him. And it's clear that the Lord Jesus read these psalms as pointing to him. When in John 13 he predicts his betrayal, he quotes one of the psalms of lament, Psalm 41. Even my close friend who shared my bread has turned against me. It was Judas, of course. As he hung on the cross... He chose words from one of the psalms of lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yes, no doubt he quoted that because he was fulfilling it. This was how salvation was to be achieved as he received the God forsakenness that we deserve. But knowing that did not take away the agony of it. And Gethsemane, as we've just heard, cried to God, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so before reading these psalms as our psalms, let's recognize they belong to another. They first of all belong to Jesus. They speak to David. They speak of his story. And that is then encapsulated and fulfilled in Jesus. And then as those who belong to Jesus, we put our trust in him. They become our songs too. Because we know that Jesus is the divine king. And you'd think that would make life so much easier. We know that with a word, God could bring all the suffering to an end, destroy all the enemies, but he doesn't seem to do it. Why, Lord? Why do people continue to reject you? Why do so few people actually believe the words that were so wonderfully spoken of the coronation, that Jesus is the King of Kings? Why do people still get punished for following him? Why is it so hard for me to follow him? And why does the misery and mess of the world carry on, even though you entered the world 2,000 years ago? How long, Lord, before you get rid of the pain of loneliness and isolation? and the pain of being overwhelmed with trouble, and the pain of sickness and the bereavement, anguish and depression. How long, Lord? And many of us find that these psalms beautifully speak for us, that that groan in our hearts is not something that somehow we should feel embarrassed about, somehow Suppress because it's a sign of ungodliness. It's a groan that David felt. It's a groan that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself expressed. There's the groan. But that's the first stage. With that feeling of anguish, it then moves on, verses 3 to 4, into a prayer. As David Addresses God in very personal terms. Look on me and answer, Lord, my God. Look on me. Do you see me, Lord? It doesn't feel like it. Answer. Do you hear me, Lord? It doesn't feel like it. But he's praying. He prays with urgency, verse 3, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. So often you can see how someone's feeling just by looking in the eye. They're lit up or they're cast down. And the darkness of his circumstances means that David recognizes a danger that the light will go out altogether. He'll be snuffed out, he'll be killed. And the horror of that is not just that he'll be dead, No, verse 4, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I've overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Now, I wouldn't pray that. If I was in danger of dying, I might pray, Lord, rescue me from death. But I wouldn't go on and say, otherwise my enemies will gloat and say, ah, he's died. That's not what I would pray. One commentator said, whenever you find a prayer in the Psalms that you'd think, I just wouldn't pray it like that, that's a reminder that someone else is praying. This is the king. This is the king's song. And if you were here last week, you'll know that Psalms 1 and 2 are designed to introduce the whole of the Psalter. And Psalm 2 puts the whole of these next uh, 148 psalms in the context of the Bible's plot. If the psalms are the Bible in in miniature, Psalm 2 is the Psalter, the book of Psalms in miniature, and it speaks of a drama that's playing out in the universe. How the nations, the world, is in opposition to God and his king, but God says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's response to the rejection of him and the nation's opposition, the world pushing him out of his life, out of, out of their world, is to install his king, to appoint his king. And then he says, one day, the king will crush all his enemies. That's the context of the book of Psalms. It, it starts with huge expectations. The king is going to be the chief character. God has made him the king, and one day he will crush all the enemies and all will be well, and the kingdom of God will come in all its fullness. There's great expectation at that point. And then notice how the Psalter continues. Straight after this promise of the coming king, Psalm 3, a king speaks. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. That's straight away we get the conflict that drives so many of these psalms of lament. This distinction between what God has promised and the reality. Because it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened yet. Here is David saying, how long, O Lord? Because you promised that I will be the king. but I don't feel like the king because the world is rejecting me. David's story becomes Jesus' story. The king who's been installed and God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. The world continues to attack and Jesus prays, Hebrews 5, verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Well, do we pray? As those who belong to Jesus. We're not immunized from feeling the horror, the groan of a world in a mess. So often our lives in a mess. yes let's groan but then let's pray as Jesus did with fervent cries and tears why don't I pray like that could it be that I think I can cope but I really can't and sometimes the the depth of our circumstances is what it takes to bring us on our knees and to recognize in a world of conflict we have no hope without God Or could it be, it's not that I, I think I can cope. I feel I can't cope. I don't want to think about the mess of my life. I want to think about the mess around me and the fact that the world is not as it should be. It's much easier just to switch off. And again, Caroline of the video referred to, to ways in which we can immediately reach for our phones. As soon as pain comes, instead of reaching out to God in distress, I'm trying to switch off. Just look at something. It could be something perfectly innocent, it could be something pretty harmful, not innocent. Anything to anesthetize the pain. Of course, the reality is, if we keep on doing that, it might for that moment anesthetize the pain, whatever we look to, but it doesn't take it away. And when the anesthetic wears off, it's still there, still nagging. But take it to God. Pray to him. The groan becomes the prayer. And then verses 5 and 6, we get to the resolve. But I trust in your unfailing love. Now there's no indication here that the, the circumstances which... Prompted that groan in the first place have, have gone away. There's no indication that the enemies have been destroyed. But, but in the midst of, of that horror, in the midst of what he still feels, he resolves, "I trust." In verse six, "I will sing." He doesn't ignore his circumstances. He doesn't deny his feelings, but nor does he let either control his outlook on life. And sometimes that's a temptation, isn't it? If we just look around, the world is in a mess. And that can get us down. Some particular circumstance, maybe someone close to us or, or something that's happening to us gets us down. We look around And then we look within and we feel wretched. If that's the only place we look where we're left in the darkness. And so often what those songs on the playlist are doing are reflecting the mess of the world and giving voice to the mess in our lives but they just leave us there. And there's a kind of loop of despair going on. David doesn't just look around. He doesn't just look in. He looks up. But I trust in your unfailing love because God has promised God has promised that David will be the king and David remembers that God is a God of unfailing love he's a God who in his love will keep his loving promises As he cries out to God for help, he's confident that God will deliver him. A later psalm of lament includes these words. Psalm 16, verse 10, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. As the Lord Jesus looked at the psalms, he saw, yes, the psalms of despair, and he knew that he would have to walk the path of sorrow, just as David did but he also saw the pattern that you see reflected in the psalter. The whole trajectory of the psalter is really from lament to praise. The opening psalms dominated by lament. Not all of them, but that's the dominant mood, but the concluding psalms praise. Every book of the psalter ends with an exhortation to praise the Lord. And even within these psalms of lament, there's a going low, there's a recognition of the misery and distress that so often we feel, and yet it never ends there except one psalm, Psalm 88. the others there's a movement up not necessarily because the situation has changed at all but because the heart has been lifted up because the whole direction of travel is not from a world in mess to a world in mess but because the king has been installed one day everything will be put right we're heading to the eternal glory of praise as he looks up to God He looks forward. My heart rejoices in your salvation. David is confident that one day he will be the king. God has promised. And we read of the Lord Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew the death could not be the end. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And Peter on the day of Pentecost said, that was talking about Jesus ultimately. He couldn't stay dead. He was raised. He's now in the glory of heaven at the right hand of God. Psalm 30 verse 5, weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Look up. Look forward. And what will help you? Well, look back, verse 6. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Can you not say that? Even if at the moment it doesn't feel as if he's been very good to you, can you not say he has been good to me? I think of the lovely old saint who must have died 20 years ago, dear Arthur Casson, long-term member of St. Ed's. When we invited congregation members to invite some of their friends who were not Christians round for a meal, and then maybe one of us would, would give a little talk about the Christian faith, have a discussion, Arthur, aged 85 at the time, invited his neighbours. And I said, Arthur, they don't want to hear from me. Why don't I just interview you about your life? Which I did. Now, I knew Arthur had had a very hard life in many, many ways. So he told him about how his wife, Caris had died of cancer. How his son, John, died of cancer. How his son, Peter, at the time, was uh, stricken with cancer and had a terrible operation that rearranged his face. And he said something about these challenges and struggles that he'd gone through. And then I'll never forget the look in his eyes and the exact words he said. He said, but you know, God has been so good to me. And he meant it. Don't just look around. Don't just look in. Look back. God has been so good to me. And maybe at the moment you can't feel that. But can you not at the very least look back to the cross? And God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has been so good to me. And so I will sing the Lord's praise. And sometimes that will bubble up from the heart. And strikingly, even in these early Psalms that are dominated by Psalms of Lament, every now and then, some of us have been looking through those Psalms in the, the little booklet we produced, and every now and then you get a magnificent Psalm 8 What is mankind that you're mindful of them? You've made us a little lower than the angels. Or Psalm 19 The heavens declare the glory of God, even in the midst of the, the suffering of his circumstances. He feels a song in his heart. At other times, it will be through gritted teeth. You won't necessarily feel it, but it will be a determination. I will sing. I don't feel like it. But I know that even in the midst of the horrors, this messed up world and the circumstances of what I'm feeling, even while this groan lingers in my heart, I know that God is there. I know that he's a God of unfailing love. I know that his king, Jesus, has been installed. I know that he will come again and all will be well. So I will sing praise. It's time to sing that song again. And there are many, many more than 10,000 reasons to do it. Can you hear the king singing? even in the midst of his distress? And will you join the King's song even in the midst of your distress? Let's be quiet and listen to a version of Psalm 13 sung to us. It's not going to be on the screens. Just maybe close your eyes. Use this as an opportunity to allow these words to become your own.
0: i